talk about the difference between compassion and pity. And um, it's important because sometimes I think we operate out of pity when we should, and we should, we don't do things that we should do, and then we do things that we shouldn't do, and we do it all in the name of God. And thank God He blesses us for what we do do and for what we neglect to do. God is merciful. So I wanted to start out like that because you're all still smiling at me. This might just dig a little bit when we get into self-pity. And um, I just want to tell you that we're all afflicted by these things at one time or another. I have to take my sweater off. It's a little warm in here. We talked about layering earlier, and this is a definite place where you want to layer in Texas. So Colossians 3.17 says, And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything is to be done in the name of our Lord, irrespective of what it is, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. If this is properly obeyed, everything we do will take on a brand new complexion. Let's do everything unto the Lord. And it'll keep your attitude good, even when you don't want to have a good attitude. Do everything unto the Lord. We don't belong to ourselves anymore, and whatever we do, we do it unto God, so that way there we avoid feeling sorry for ourselves. It's easy to feel sorry for yourself, and if you don't recognize the signs and the symptoms, you can fall into that without even knowing it. It's like the trap when we talked about renewing your mind. You can fall into listening to what the devil is telling you without even knowing it. And then when you see and you go, oh, I see that now because everything that God says is for now. It's not for the past. God doesn't say, what are you going to do? So once we recognize these schemes, we can take authority of it and we can feel better emotionally and spiritually. Christians can be conflicted because our nature is always to give to the needy. Okay? Christians want to give. And we need to understand true need and have the discernment to know when God says to help and when God says don't help. You know, Jesus healed people, but he didn't heal everybody. You know, why don't people get healed? I don't have the answer for that. That's not the class. So the definition of sympathy or pity is sympathetic grief or sorrow excited by the suffering or misfortune of another, often leading people to give and show mercy. Pity is a purely emotional response. Okay, we see a commercial on television, you know, we're going to give to these kids on the street, which I think is kind of funny because this particular commercial that's on now says, you know, they don't even have a blanket. But if you send $19, we'll send you a blanket. And it's like, give it to the kid on the street. I have plenty of blankets. Don't send me a blanket. But see, they, they tug on your heartstrings. Or I can't even watch the one about abused animals. It's like, you know, shut this off. Why are they showing us these things? Why? Because they want, they're appealing to your emotions, to that response that you see that. And what do you naturally want to do? Whether you're saved or not saved, you want to help. You want to help them. 
And a lot of these places get your money, and then when you look at their financial statement, you see they don't even give out what they take in. Most of it's for administrative expenses, and maybe 1% goes to help that puppy. But they appeal to our emotions, so we can respond out of our emotions and out of compulsion. Well, you know, i got to help, i got to help. Well, you can't save everybody and everything. You can't do it. It's not possible. You're not God. Now, compassion is the feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another's sufferings or misfortune, accompanied with love and a desire to alleviate the pain. We see the same commercial, but we give out of compassion when there's a spiritual response to it. See, one's purely emotional, but when compassion is involved, then we have a grace to do it, we have the unction to do it, and we give because God says give. So it's emotions plus grace. And pity and compassion, they like run on the same train. Okay, they're on the same track. Pity is destructive. Compassion is productive. So there's two different things. And you have to understand that because a little while later we're going to dig into self-pity. So you need to understand that there's a difference in pity and compassion. One's just purely emotional. You know, I send my $19 check because I don't want kids to be out on the street and my emotions were tugged. The spiritual response is, I want to help, so I'm going to send money. See, it's very, very similar, but don't forget the devil has only a couple of tricks in his basket, and a lot of them are very similar to what God would have us to do. Here's another way to look at the difference between pity and compassion. <clears throat> pity, I will give you a fish. All right, you expect me to come back tomorrow and give you another fish. I will give you an hour of my time so you can tell me your problems. You do nothing and tomorrow you want another hour of my time to tell me your problems. That's pity. Okay, I have to keep feeding it. I have to keep giving it. I have to, I, I can't, I've got to keep it up to keep you happy. And as a Christian, it fulfills my need to give and my need to feel good about myself because I'm giving you a fish. Here's compassion. Here's the difference. I will give you the fish, but I'm also going to teach you how to fish. This takes time and effort, and it actually takes the same amount of time and effort to operate in compassion as it does in pity. I use an hour on the telephone so you can tell me your problems. We pray together. We map out a thing, and maybe you don't get it the first time, but the unction of God says to hang on to this person, hang on to this situation because they're going to get it with enough time, enough grace, and enough fortitude. See, pity, you're just feeding the piggy all the time. You're just feeding it, feeding it, feeding it, feeding it. Nothing's ever changed. You know, a year down the road, you're still feeding it, feeding it, feeding it, feeding it. Compassion, you're feeding it, but you're teaching by example as well. So you're going hand in hand. Compassion is relationship with it. Many times, sometimes you don't, sometimes you just give, and then somebody else has the compassion. Like we send out for our missions out to Alaska, we send money. We write a check, and we send it to Jane Martin, and so they have the compassion. 
because we can't have the compassion on them because we're not there. We send our shoeboxes because we don't have the ability to go where the shoeboxes are going. So do you see the difference? I teach you to fish, but we, it takes time and effort to have compassion. And God will give you the grace to do it because people are very difficult to work with. It's very difficult to try to help somebody without the grace of God on your life. Set goals, do something a positive, and they'll eventually they'll get it. I mean, how many of you, I just had my spiritual birthday, and when I was first born again, I needed a lot of tender, loving care. I needed a lot of grace. I needed people to help me. I needed people to show me, and I needed people to stick with me. But see, God sees down the road, and he sees whether we're going to get it or not. And even if we don't, we still need to obey God. If God says put time in that person or do this for that person, we need to obey God and trust that maybe we can get them down the road a little ways and then somebody else will pick it up and take them down. But there's some people, they ask for money. I mean, we get calls here asking to pay a utility bill. And I've learned from, I have a lot of experience in this because I've answered the phone for like 15 years at my other church. My first question is, well, did you go to your church? And they'll say, well, I don't go to church. And, I, and then I would say, well, why are you asking a church for money? See, it's like we're supposed to have an open pocketbook for people. And that's not the case at all. But you can get into it. And I have gotten, as the secretary of the other church, I spent thousands of my own dollars helping people that couldn't be helped. I didn't know any better. I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And this is why a lot of these teachings are born out of personal experience. A lot of hours, a lot of wasted time, a lot of times being manipulated by people who wanted something. And so I've learned now. So praise God for that. We have to have compassion for those who cannot help themselves. We have to have that, but we have to have it directed. We can't become enablers. We can't be constantly, if you're always helping the same person with the same thing. You know, I like this story, and I can't get, if I mess it up a little bit, Barbara, I don't want to. But you were talking about Cliff, how he was helping Scott fix his car. And so... Cliff wanted Scott, their son, to be right there to help them. Well, Scott did it the first time and maybe the second time. And then after he went off with his friends expecting Dad to fix it, came back and said, well, you know, is it done yet? And Cliff said, no, I stopped working as soon as you stop working. And see, he didn't enable and complain and fuss. He just said, well, you know, we'll just do it, you know, later. We can't become enablers if somebody stops. How many times, well, up in Pittsfield, it was, we, we had this family that we went in and cleaned their house. I refused to go because I knew that it was a wasted effort. They cleaned the house, and two weeks later, it was a mess because you didn't teach them anything. They didn't want to learn. All they wanted was their house cleaned so that when the child protective services came in, they wouldn't lose their kids. That's not a good, that's not a motive the motive should be, I want to learn how to keep my house. But their motive was, I need help so I don't lose my kids. But you go back to their house two weeks later, it was a mess. As a matter of fact, one family was out to actually an episode on hoarders. 
And we helped clean their house once. I mean, it was really bad. But it didn't do any good to just clean their house. So we had pity, but we didn't have any compassion because we didn't teach them anything. True compassion would have said, what, what's your motive for us to come? And let's map out a plan so we can help you to keep it. Now that's compassion. You know, let's help you do it. We'll walk alongside with you. We're not going to judge you. But let's just, let, let's see how we can help you to make new habits and make new things. We understand a lot of people, I wasn't raised right. I had to learn a lot of things. But I, I had to go step by step and I had to have somebody with me, not condemning me, but just showing me, teaching me. We have to be teachers. In Luke 7, 11 to 15, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great throng accompanied him. Just as he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large gathering from the town was accompanying her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said, Do not weep. And he went forward and touched the casket, and the pallbearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise from death. And the man who was dead sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Jesus had compassion on, his, on that mother. He was moved to, with compassion. He told his disciples he can only do what he had seen his father to do, and that's in John 5, 8, 5.19. God the Father always has compassion on us. He never pities. Many times we read where Jesus asked people the question, do you want to be well? We have the liberty to follow his lead, and we have to ask people, what do you want? You know, you're asking me for help, but why do you want it? What are you going to do about your situation? See, do you see how much better that is than just handing somebody money? We had a man sit in this congregation and wait until after service, and then he asked Clarence if we could help him pay his gas bill. And I, you know, and the stories, when they, they tell these stories, and I'm sure you've all heard them, they don't even make sense. They don't even add up. It's like, well, okay, you know. Remember, and there was like six people living in the house, and they were all working. And I said, well, why have they let their gas bill go like this? What, you know, why? You know, what do you really want? And I don't think that's a bad question if somebody comes to you or comes to this church, or comes to us, and wants something from us, we have every right to ask, why do you want this? What are you willing to do to make your situation better? You know, you want me to help you do this, but what are you going to do to help yourself? And here we see that in John 5, 5 through 9. There was a certain man who had suffered with a deep-seated and lingering disorder for 38 years. When Jesus noticed him lying there helpless, knowing that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to them, do you want to become well? That's the question. When people come to us and they want our help, we have to ask them, do you want to become well? So we have to be wise with our investment. And I think a question like that when somebody comes to you for help, especially repeatedly, you know, we, 
we have to be wise and say, well, if you, you know, you've come to me six times with the same problem, do you really want help? And then when you get the funny story with six facts that don't add up and everything else, you could say, well, it's clear to me you don't really want help. But I'm going to pray that God will make a way for you to understand that you need help. And I'll be here to help you when you want help. But I can't help you right now. And see, that's hard for us because it goes against our Christian belief that we have to help when people ask for help. So he says, do you want to become well? Amplified says in brackets, are you really in earnest about getting well? The invalid answered, sir, I have nobody when the water is moving to put me in the pool. But while I'm trying to come into it myself, someone else steps down ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your bed and walk. Instantly, the man became well and recovered his strength and picked up his bed and walked. But that happened on the Sabbath. Okay, so Jesus said, do you want to be well? And he said, sir, I don't have anybody. This man was in such dire conditions. All he saw was one way to, he, to, to get his healing was to get into that pool. And every time that pool was troubled, he'd struggle and he'd try, but somebody else got in front of him. And Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And Jesus saw the heart of that man. And he said, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately he was healed. See, he, Jesus could have sat by the pool with him until it was troubled and pulled him in. I mean, there's other ways that Jesus could have accomplished this. But Jesus was direct with it. Do you want to be healed? Well, you want to be healed? Get up. I'm sure he wasn't that blunt. <laughs> well, he might have been. I don't know. Jesus had compassion, and he offered him a way out. See, that's what compassion does. Do you want to be healed? Well, then get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The invalid had to do his part. See, it's a two-way thing. If this is pity, just hands the fish, hands the fish. Compassion, there's a part on the person needing help, and there's a part that helping. See, there's got to be effort on that person's side. If there's no effort, there's going to be no change. Do you know when you hand out people things for free that they don't treasure it as much as if they have worked for it? The disciples saw that, and then when Peter and John went up to the temple and prayed, they met somebody. Acts 3, 1 through 8. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, when a certain man crippled from his birth was being carried along, who was laid each day at the gate, of the temple, which is called beautiful, so that he might beg for charitable gifts from those who entered the temple. So when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them a gift. And Peter directed his gaze intently at him, and so did John, and said, Look at us. And the man paid attention to them, expecting that he was going to get something from them. But Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I have that I give you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Then he took hold of the man's right hand with a firm grip and raised him up. And at once his feet and ankle bones became strong and steady. And leaping forth, he stood up and began to walk. And he went into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So see, the disciples were around and they learned from Jesus. And 
maybe Peter did have money. I don't know. I wasn't there. But he didn't give it to him. He gave him something better. He gave him his thing. But the man, compassion sees that that man could not help himself. There was no way he could help himself. His ankles and his feet received strength, which they not, which they would not have if the man had not attempted to rise. See, you got to have them do something. They have to do something. Peter extends his hand as encouragement, but the beggar had to make his decision to rise. He does his part and Peter does his, and yet it's Christ that does it all. They both do their parts, and then we trust God to do what needs to be done. The compassion of Christ is to help people get on their feet and become productive. Compassion is kind and encourages people to get to the point where they will do their part to help themselves. You know, it's a long process sometimes, but that's where you need the anointing of God. Helping people on their feet can be frustrating. As we get new babies in and stuff, it's going to be frustrating. It's going to take all of us to help people. Because number one, sometimes when people come in, they're not entirely honest. Okay? And what I've learned, I really had such a a good school up in Massachusetts because I learned a lot just by observation. Okay, what I learned when people came in and they weren't entirely honest, they would tell Barbara a story, they would tell me a story, they would tell Francis a story, and none of the facts ever were the same. And then they would try to say things like, well, Barbara was so mean to me, and try to create division and strife and stuff. This is why we have to be all on the same page and understand how these spirits operate. Because then you confront it, well, Barbara said this and this to me, and then I say, well, I know Barbara, and that's not her character. But let's go to Barbara, and let's figure this out all together. And see, that's where you cut off the strife. That's where you cut off the division. That's where you cut off the plans of the enemy is where you're all on one page. And see, this is what happens, though. Well, what do you mean Barbara was mean to you? What did she say to you? Oh, I can't believe that. And then I go over to Doris and I say, hey, Doris, do you believe what Barbara said to the new person? I mean, I can't believe it. Can you believe it? Well, no, of course you can't. So you've created strife where there was nothing But if you take that person, and all it is is part of this is self-pity because that person wants attention, that new person. But if you nip it and say, well, that's not her character, let's go to them. Or do you realize what the pastor said? Well, honestly, I know Pastor Clarence really well, and I don't think he'd say anything like that. He probably didn't meant it. But let's you and I go over there, and let's, let's ask him what he really meant. Do you know how much garbage you have just wiped out right there so we have to be wise and harmless looking but we're not because we're soldiers of the cross amen so we have to take people to the cross we point them to the cross we have each other's back i have your back because i said well that's not her character that's not like them instead of going "Ooh, what do my itching ears hear a little tidbit that I can pass on? No, we just cross it. Because why? Because self-pity manipulates and it attacks and it's ruthless. It's just like that other 
thing that attacks your mind where we talked about renewing your mind. You're under a constant attack. You don't even realize it. Because, you know, we get comfortable with the way we think and what we do. Self-pity attacks compassion. And it manipulates. Because truthfully, the bottom line is many people just don't want help. They don't want your help. They just want your money. They want a handout. They want your time so they can continue in their destructive lifestyle. When you start asking questions like, do you want to be well? They, sometimes they get angry. Well, yeah, I want to be well. It's just You don't understand my childhood. You know, well, you're 50 years old. You know, you're, you're, how old are you now? You're 40 and you're still blaming your parents? But see how self-pity works at trying to pull on that heartstrings just like that abused animal on TV. It's like, hey, I was the abused animal and you don't want to help me. Well, what kind of Christian are you? So what happens? They tug on your heartstrings out of pity you help them reluctantly and then you start to get mad and upset at yourself or you know you go to the grocery store and you gave them 20 bucks and your groceries come up to $19 and you don't have the 20 because you gave it to them Uh, it's just a snowball thing whereas if you just ask the question do you really want help do you really want to be well well no well I'm going to pray And when you really want to be well, you come back and I'm going to help you to be well. But I can't enable bad behavior. Compassion is the heart of God. Compassion allows you to give freely and without reserve. That's the compassion of God. But we have to have that grace for it. Warning signal. We can feel used when we operate out of pity. That's when we start to feel used. And then what happens? And then you start getting into self-pity. And because self-pity is one of those contagious things. We talk about COVID being contagious, self-pity, gossip, jealousy, envy. Those things are way more contagious than COVID. And you can't even vaccinate it against it. Not that you can vaccinate against it for the other either, but there is no vaccination for this. It's got to be stopped. So now we're going a little deeper. We're going to talk about self-pity. Because if you, if you begin to feel used and angry, it is a sign that maybe helping someone really doesn't want to change. And maybe you need to stop. So it's, you know, and I could tell you, I've enabled people. I've poured thousands of dollars down the drain that I could look back later and say, I really could use that money now. I'm sorry, I just threw it. You'd be better off helping people. If you want to, if, if you ever get the inkling, okay, after this class of helping somebody who doesn't want help, get your wallet. We've got a drain pipe out there. Open the drain pipe and just throw your money down the drain like that and get a visual of what you're doing with this person that absolutely doesn't want to change and God's saying don't help him and you're trying to do it in your own strength. Self-pity, the definition, self-indulgent attitude concerning your own difficulties. The compassion which God intends for you to direct toward others is directed toward yourself, showing mercy and grace to yourself because of entitlement and a victim mentality. I mean, this spirit is rampant across our country right now. 
I mean, people just pity themselves. You know, they had a rough childhood. They had, you know, they were born the wrong color. I even read where a very major Christian organization is asking for your donations and an apology for being white. Now, they had to walk it back, okay, because I will never give to that organization. I don't care how many bells are going to ring in my face. I will never give them a penny of my money again if you want me to apologize for what God made me. But it's all this pitiful stuff. It's this victim mentality. It's trying to divide people by race, by color, by religion. And and it's awful, but it all starts with self-pity to feel sorry. Feel sorry that you didn't have the ideal childhood. I've got news for you. None of the people in this room have had an ideal childhood. We can all look at something in our childhood that was not right. Amen? Something. You could find something. Even in a perfect childhood, you can find something. And you can blow that up and magnify it to the point where everything that was good and right and perfect doesn't even exist anymore. It's just that one thing. And you know my backgrounds. I could do that. Blow it all up. And yet I say, God, thank you that now I can enjoy my life. See, God can take a bad situation and make it good, which we can't teach this generation out here because they're too busy feeling sorry for themselves. People with self-pity do not want a solution. They want people to feel sorry for them and to give to them, but they have no intention of changing. And it's like you can see the goalposts change every time you do something for somebody, and it's never enough. This spirit is never satisfied. It's, that's how you know it's, it's from the pit of hell, because somewhere in the Bible, and I don't know the scripture, but it says you know, that hell is enlarging itself, and it's never satisfied. And these spirits that come from the pit of hell enlarge themselves, and they're never satisfied. It's always something else. It's always one more thing. Self-pity wants somebody else to do all the hard work while they watch. Selfish people are preoccupied with their life. A person who may have gotten their own way when they were a child never outgrew their need for control. In life, things don't always go our way. Some people cannot cope at all when things happen differently than what they're planned. That's why I appreciate you bringing the little one and making him obey. That's what has to be done. You notice our little girls, they just come walking up and they're a little more submissive now. But when we started making them come up, it was like, well, can I sit with you? I said, no, you need to sit with Miss Barbara. You know, well, I want to go sit with Nanny. No, you need to sit here. And, and they've understood because we're, we're not letting them get away with it because we're looking down the road at their behavior, and if they continue in that, it's going to be bad for them. But see, people with a lot of self-pity as adults were never told the word no. People sometimes feel sorry for themselves because they have a low frustration level and they weren't never taught how to handle life's obstacles in a healthy way. Do you want to be well? Yes. Well, you know what? You have, I can see you've had an unhealthy background and you need to handle, you need to get some coping skills that are better. Do you want me to help you learn how to cope better with life's frustrations? 
no, I don't want that. I just want $20 so I can go out and abuse my body again. Well, sorry. Self-pity is lazy and would rather feel sorry for themselves than do something to help themselves. We make choices every day. Self-pity makes the easy choices and then has buyer's remorse later. Oh, I wished I had gone. You know, you, you have it so easy. Everybody in this room has worked really hard for what they have. Everybody has worked hard. And all they see, people with self-pity just see the results of it, but they don't see the hard work. They don't see the hours. You know, they say, well, you know, it's nice to be able to pastor a church. They don't see the times we have to turn down things because we have to study on Saturday. Now we've taken up the Wednesday morning, so we're on Tuesday. Not being self-pity, but just pointing it out that there's hard work attached with everything that you do, everything that you have. People with self-pity don't recognize the hard work. All they see is the results or the fruit of it. And they say, well, wow, you have a nice house. Well, it wasn't nice when we started. You know, Barbara can say because they built, they had a house that wasn't nice when they started. But you look at it now and it's beautiful. But all people with self-pity do see, well, they've got a nice house. Well, they didn't see all the work that it had to put into it. Self-pity is also attached to covetousness and envy. It's a spiritual force and it's contagious. People with self-pity maybe have subtly, they, and it's a subtle sneaky spirit. Sometimes when you talk to somebody with self-pity, then you're like, you start thinking about your own life and going, wow, I've got it really rough and I didn't even realize it. You know, I mean, but it works like that. Think about it. When you think about somebody and you go, wow. And then you start going, yeah, I, I see that now. Gee. You start developing self-pity or even pride because your difficulties are hard or pride because you've overcome in some areas where this person obviously didn't. So then you become prideful. Well, I don't see why they can't do it. Well, I did it. So it, you see all these things are so attached and they're so subtle and they're so sneaky. They're just so sneaky. Self-pity creates division and unrest as the afflicted person seeks to have their needs fulfilled rather than obeying what God wants. They don't care about God, what God wants. They just want their needs met. This person can complain, refuse to cooperate, even if they do it nicely, only do what they want to do, and they put a drain on anybody they have contact with. Self-pity, you might as well just hook up. All I think about are in, in the septic tanks, and they put that hose in there, and they drain out that tank. Well, self-pity has got a hose attached to it, and it'll take your spiritual life, and it'll suck the life out of you because it's never satisfied. Like that commercial for abused animals, self-pity tries to gain access to your time and your resources by attempting to create massive amounts of sympathy for them. You know, well, you know I'm like this because of whatever, you know, my poor childhood, my abusive marriage, my, you know, fill in the blank. Self-pity says, I have this overwhelming special need for your help. 
Self-pity says, I am a victim, so I cannot help myself. Self-pity steals your time and your money and your your compassion, so you run the risk of becoming hardened to legitimate needs. Because you've helped and helped and helped, and there's no help. So, well, next time somebody asks me for help, well, that time it was legitimate, but you missed it because you've been pouring out in the wrong field. Self-pity can place you on the defensive by pointing out how privileged you are. Self-pity will point out the advantages you had over them. You may be unwilling or unable to help this person, and yet you may start to feel guilty and condemnation because you are not being a good Christian. Self-pity will do anything to get its own way. And now remember that when you're having your pity party. Remember you are not accountable to alleviate every painful or difficult situation in others' lives, only the one that God chose you to. And if you choose to intervene without God's grace, you'll become exhausted, broken, resentful because self-pity wants to drain you, wants to suck the life out of you so you're too tired to even get up and pray. It wants to confuse you. It wants you to stop asking questions and just do it. And remember, you're not the Savior. Jesus is. Our goal is to show people where the foot of the cross is. It says in Matthew 11, 28, 29, Come to me, all, who are, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden and overburdened, and I will cause you to rest. I will ease, relieve, and refresh your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, relief and ease and refreshment and recreation and blessed quiet for your souls. Okay, these are some of the things that self-pity does not like. One, self-pity does not like to be reminded of squandered opportunities or past failures as being their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. They're not willing to take responsibility for their own actions. If opportunities are mentioned, it is only to make you feel terrible because they had a bad break and you obviously had better parents, better, you know, you had money, you were privileged. Very often their stories don't even make sense. Self-pity is covetous. We've already talked about this and neglects to see the hard work you put into overcoming your obstacles. All self-pity sees is that you have it easier than them because you have a nice house, a good car, a nice spouse, um, a good family, um, whatever self-pity wants to direct that person to see. See, but they're bound by it. It's not. It's a spiritual force that they're bound by it. Self-pity does not like to be told they must do something to take care of their situation. They'll get mad at you and say, well, what kind of Christian are you? Telling me I got to do something, just give it to me. They prefer to blame their lack of success on anything and everything except their poor choices. And I'm not saying, you understand we have to have compassion on people because they make poor choices. I made a slew of poor choices. And I'm glad I'm not judged by them. But I'm not making them anymore because I learned my lesson. I was not a repeat offender. I mean, back back in the day I was. But I mean, once I got the revelation of it, I stopped offending. And I stopped being the repeat offender. So I don't do that anymore. 
God wants us all to be overcomers. We need help getting there. And we need to be compassionate with people. People with self-pity do not want help, only a handout. And if I could stress that many, many times, they just want a handout. They really don't want help. But you can pray for them. You can say, God, I see that they're only using, they only want, but Lord, bring them to the foot of the cross. Bring them to a place where they'll cry out to you. And I'm going to help them by, I'm going to help that person come to the cross by saying no to them. Philippians 2, 12 through 15 says, Therefore, my dear ones, as you have always obeyed my suggestions, so now, not only with the enthusiasm you would show in my presence, but much more because I am absent, work out your own salvation with reverence and awe and trembling. With serious caution, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation, timidly shrinking from whatever might offend God and discredit the name of Christ. Not in your own strength, for it is God who is all the while effectually working at at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power and desire both to will and to work for his good pleasure, pleasure and satisfy and delight, satisfaction and delight. Do all things without grumbling and fault-finding and complaining against God and questioning and doubting among yourselves, that you may show yourselves to be blameless and guileless, innocent, uncontaminated children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation, among whom you are seen as bright lights in the dark world, holding out to it and offering to all men the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have something of which exultantly to rejoice in glory in that I did not run my race in vain or spend my labor to no purpose. I want to run my race not in vain but with a purpose. So how will I know when I'm dealing with somebody full of self-pity or someone who needs empathy and real help? Well, it's easy to spot self-pity over a legitimate need. Self-pity drags on forever without any improvement. That's basically the, that basically that's the big red flag. Drags on forever, no improvement, lots of drama. Lots of stories, lots of things that just don't add up. Lots of pointing back to the childhood, blaming other people. So we, we have some keys now when somebody comes to us for help, we have some keys to recognize it. There's always a new crisis. Nothing ever gets better. Someone with a legitimate need will eventually begin to regain their emotional health and their problem will be put in perspective. This person will move forward. With compassion and love, people will move forward. People with self-pity, you have no interest at that moment because I don't want to write off like everybody, okay, and say you're full of self-pity and you're going to hell. No, no. We don't want to write people off, but at that moment, they're not, they're, they're not in a place where they can be helped. But that's where you recognize it and say, Lord, they have self-pity. They don't want help, but I'm going to pray for them that you would bring them to a place where they need help, where they recognize their need for help. Self-pity looks for places other than self to blame because it will not take responsibility for its own actions. Self-pity is never looking for a resolution of their problem. They always want the fish the next day. Self-pity does not want to make difficult choices to alleviate their situation. Now, here's some of these triggers that can grow into self-pity. 
if we develop a bad attitude. See, we determined when we came to this church, and uh, Clarence has, he's got one of the best attitudes of anybody that I ever, I ever met. He's always got a positive attitude. So I had to learn from him. But we don't get upset with things that happen at the church, okay? Very rarely. I mean, there's things that do happen or things that, but we have determined to stay positive. We don't ever look out at the congregation and say, well, you know, this should be, this ought not be. <laughs> this should be full, and I don't understand it. And why isn't anybody helping with that? See, the, 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 those are such horrible attitudes to have. You know, well, 5% of the people do 95% of the work. And I'm one of the five. You've got to keep a good attitude about things. God will adjust your attitude. And that wasn't some kind of passive-aggressive message. I just want you to know. It wasn't like I'm trying to get a message across, so I'm making a message of a message. I'm not trying to do that. But I'm saying, wouldn't you... You could feel an attitude like that. And that is like one of the biggest turnoffs. It was for me at my other church where, you know, they would be pulling. That's why I get up here and when we need help, I'll just say this is what we need done. But if you can't do it, don't worry about it. Pray for us. And we'll either get it done with the grace that God gives us or somebody will send a helper. I hate to ask for help. Because I assume that people see a need and they're just going to jump in and do it. So I have to, I, my job is to keep my attitude. I try to have a good attitude over all things and not get upset because the devil can take these things and upset you to the point where you're going to get self-pity. And this is some of the things, I say this so you can see that developing a bad attitude is like a prelude to self-pity because you're going to start feeling sorry for yourself with a bad attitude. I think I have a good attitude about things. Okay? Do you concur there, Pastor? Okay, good. Yeah, I know. I put them on the spot. It's like, you know, the answer The answer is yes. <laughs> we can laugh a little bit, right? Okay, so here's some triggers that can grow into self-pity if you have a bad attitude. So number one thing that you have to watch out for is being overtired, overbusy, physically exhausted, and getting discouraged. That can make you have self-pity. Because we, we make it a thing that at a, after a certain part in the evening, we stop working. Whether there's work to be done or not, we just stop. Okay, we try to take time. Sometimes that doesn't work. But, you know, overall, we have pretty balanced life. And we have pretty much fun, don't we? Don't we? Okay. Um, another trigger is you're out of balance. Too much work, too much spare time. Too much spare time is just as evil as too much work. Because when you have a lot of time on your hands, you can get into a lot of trouble 
without even trying. Number three, too involved in other people's lives and they are too dependent on you. Oh, go help them again today. Oh, oh. So then you start to develop what? A bad attitude. You start to feel sorry for yourself. Number four, feelings of helplessness. Feeling like you can't do anything about it. You can always do something about it. Starting point, pray. And say, God, I feel so helpless in this situation. I can't see direction. I'm blinded to it. I, I've got too much noise going out of my head. Please show me the direction I'm supposed to take. And then sit quiet before the Lord. If I get like that, I go and do something else unrelated to the problem. You know, play a quick game of Scrabble on the computer. You know, just do something that's not even related. Put some praise music on. And then and then it's like, oh, I see it now. But sometimes you got to just stop thinking about how helpless you are and just give it to God and then go do something else like you've already got it solved. And then when you come back to it, God is saying, you know, we'll do this, this, and this. I wasn't sure which way to take the class this morning. And I was like, God, I don't know what way to go. And then I got it yesterday morning, which to me is kind of a panic thing because I like to like, but a lot of it's inside though. It's not like it's not accessible. Feelings of helplessness. Okay, here we are, number five. Consciously or unconsciously isolating yourself. Christians are bad at that. Sometimes people don't want to go to church because they've done something wrong. And it's like, no, you should get to the church so you can get it off of you. Isolating yourself than feeling rejected or lonely. Six, legitimate and sudden trauma. Death of a loved one, divorce, sickness with prolonged grief. There's, there's a grieving period and then there's a prolonged grieving period. We have to watch for those prolonged grieving periods. So God wants us to be responsible for ourselves. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall in that same temptation yourself. See, that's what the problem is, is we, we're not able to handle it. We try to help, and then we end up falling into the same ditch. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work. For then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. For we are responsible for our own conduct. And that's the bottom line. Each one of us responsible for our own selves. I'm not responsible for you. You're not responsible for me. I want God to be happy with me. That's why I do a lot of the things that I do, because it makes me happy when I know my father's happy. Amen? And you do the things that you do because it makes your father happy, right? Makes it makes you feel good because you know God's happy. I, my greatest desire is to see God and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So I don't have any room to complain about anything. Sometimes I'll just walk in this church and say, Lord, it, you know, 
I just want to pinch myself. I can't believe, you know, Clarence and I will say, this is such a beautiful church. Isn't it a beautiful church? Just look around you. Isn't it beautiful? We don't have any right to complain about anything. Amen? And that's how you keep your attitude good, is having that thankful heart. So the passage in Galatians 6 through 6, 1 through 5, it seems contradictory, though. We're commanded to bear the daily responsibility of our ability. Okay, that's our responsibility, is to bear our daily responsibilities. Be a productive member of society. Pay our bills, contribute. Maintain your possessions to the best of your ability. Maintain your personal body, you know, health-wise, don't overeat, don't overindulge, don't do all the things you know are wrong, take a shower, maintain your personal relationships. That's our daily responsibility. Now, as the body of Christ, we're commanded to assist others with their extraordinary burdens. Number one, like a sudden catastrophic loss. Okay, death of a loved one, sickness, divorce, sudden financial ruin. Those are the extraordinary burdens that we're to shoulder for one another. That's where it says bear one another's burdens. Not your everyday burden. That's not my responsibility. Your God-given responsibility is take caring to the best of your ability. Now, I know we're all limited, and if somebody's got an illness or something, that comes under this category where we're commanded to assist people, where they can't do it. But if you can do something for yourself, you should do it for yourself. You know, our friend Jeff, who had the bicycle accident, his wife said, I can't even say the word help. Do you want help? Because he wants to do it himself. And so he's getting stronger because he's doing a lot of things for himself that are, it's hard for him to do it, but he's doing it and he's going to end up okay on the other side of it. So we're commanded to assist with extraordinary burdens, helping people heal from past abuses, helping people on their walk as they're new Christians and they're trying to steady themselves. That's what we're commanded to do because it's an extraordinary burden. They need to be retaught. They need to have friends. They need to have healthy relationships. A lot of people who come into Christianity don't have any friends because the people that they were associating with aren't good for them anymore. So a lot of people who come in lose all of their friends. So they have to, re, they have, to have relationships. We have to be open to let people into our circle. We have to be opening. You know, it can't just be our family. It's got to be, we've got to be open and friendly with people that come in when, and not just be clicky and, you know, well, this is them and they sit there. And, you know, when we have a fellowship, try to sit with other people. Don't sit with the same people all the time. And I realize in our church it's hard because most of us could fit on two tables. But <laughs> so we're kind of put together. But don't, you know, try, try to sit differently or try to reach out, you know, call somebody on the list that you haven't heard from in a while. Do something different. Reach out. Get Take care of the extraordinary burdens. Okay, number three, we want to help those who are sick, widowed, single parent. We want to help them because those are all extraordinary burdens, and it's something that they can't help themselves. So what they can't help themselves with, that's what God expects us to go in and help and assist and 
be there. You know, widows can't take care of, you know, if you've got clogged gutters or something extraordinary, then they need help with it. They need people to help them. Or they sometimes they just need a friend to call. So those are the extraordinary burdens. We're not supposed to bear their daily burdens that enables them to stay immature. It may require time and patience to help someone through a legitimate need, but if we do it as a church and we do it as a family, and we can help our family grow. It's just like when you get it in the natural, when you get a newborn baby, you know, especially I guess in the old days, everybody would like circle around and help the baby. Now I guess we don't circle around as much because a lot of our families are more, but that's what we need to be, is be like that little house on the prairie and when somebody has a baby, we circle around. When we get a new birth, we circle around and we help that and we nurture. Help people to get to the burden bearer where not the burden bearer. And enabling someone to stay mature can help cause their problems to become your problems. So we don't want to do that. I think we've talked about that enough. And it's not your responsibility to bail anybody out constantly if they are unwilling to work toward change. It's not your responsibility. And I had a son who was out on the street when he was 18. He called me up. He went to go live with his dad when he was 15. When he was 18, he called me up and he goes, well, he goes, I left um, dad's house and I'm coming up to Pittsfield. And um, he said, you can just send me some money down to help me. And I said, well, it ain't happening. I said, he goes, well, I'm coming to live with you. And I said, well, Eric, I said, the same rules that I had at 15 are what, I, what you have at 18. You know, are you willing? I didn't want any satanic music. I, I wanted, I had a curfew for him. I named the things and I said, are you willing to do that? And he goes, well, I can't do that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. You don't, you can't live here then. And that was very difficult as a mother. I mean, I saw him on the street. He gave me the finger. I mean, it was tough to drive by and to see that. But I had to set a limit. Do you want to change? Here's the rules. Oh, no, I can't do that. At least he was honest about it. I have to give him that much. Some people lie and say yes, and then when they get in their house, they wreak the havoc that when they left. <laughs> so at least he was honest. I'll give him that. So it's not your responsibility. And um, people have to be working toward change, not just hoping to change. Self-pity says it hopes things get better, but they really don't want to change. So remember, you have what you allow. If you allow that in your life, then that's because you've allowed it. And if you don't, then start setting new boundaries. And you may have to sit down with somebody and say, I used to allow you to do this, and I used to give you so much money a week, and I'm going to wean you off of that. If, are, you willing to, are you willing to get a budget? Are you willing, if that's what the problem is, is money, you're always giving them money. You know, are you willing to go to a drug rehab because I know that you have a drug problem or you know you have an alcohol problem. You know, I'll help you as much as I can with that. Are you willing? So we can't help them unless they help themselves. They've got to meet, meet us halfway. Guard against self-pity and don't help others out of pity. Help with God's compassion and have the grace to follow through. 
how can we deal with the seeds of self-pity? If you've served, while I was talking, you could recognize some seeds and go, ooh, that's not good. It says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, Thou therefore endured hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. When you recognize you are developing or having a full-blown case of self-pity, confess it, leave it at the altar, and move on. Amen? Don't condemn yourself. We all have the same attacks. We just have to recognize it. Ask God to give you a revelation on what you are lacking. Find God's promises for that area. Become proficient rather than deficient. For example, if you're lonely, find other lonely people. Develop relationships with people. You might find out. I can't tell you the amount of friends that I have developed. I mean, at Thanksgiving up in Pittsfield, we had 10 people around the table. And they were all single women who didn't have a place to go to Thanksgiving. Learn to be a good listener with people. And a lot of people get frustrated because nobody wants to listen to them. Let God's compassion be directed toward others. Live a full life. Amen. You can overcome and you can recognize it. And it's only, it's, it's in your best interest to not keep feeding the pig. And letting, let, let true godly compassion motivate us and not, not pity. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, that we understand differences. Father, that we're not bad Christians if we say the word no. Father, that you're going to help us to have compassion for people. But Lord, we're, we're, we're through pitying people. We're through being hijacked and being manipulated. And Father, we're speaking to every situation that's represented in this room where we are manipulated, where, where we need help to get out of it because we've backed ourselves into a corner. And Father, I thank you that you give each and every one a strategy, each and every one a way that they can confront their situation, Lord, and that they can live happy and compassionate lives. Father, we don't want to shut off our, our bowels of compassion but, Father God, we just want to direct our compassion where you would have us to direct it. And, Father, we just thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.